Welcome to the Pro Aging Podcast. I'm Steve Gurney, founder of the Positive Aging Community. We're excited that you can join us for our interactive discussions with pioneers and thought leaders on a wide variety of topics related to aging and longevity. Today, we feature a discussion with Martha Callahan, MD, who is the author of A Deaf Lived. In 2010, Dr. Callahan's husband of 30 years began to die. Being a wife and a physician, she did the only thing she could do. She meticulously and compassionately described what it was like and authored her book. And today she shares her story and much more on our episode. So let's jump into an engaging discussion with Dr. Callahan. And I am delighted today to uh, to have Dr. Martha Callahan, who is a uh, physician and she's the author of the book, A Death Lived, uh, leading us in a discussion. And, and I had mentioned Capital Caring Health, but uh, uh, Cynthia Shannon with Capital Caring Health heard Dr. Callahan speak. And I think she called me in her car on the way home and said, you've got to get her on. So um, I am really charged up about uh, this discussion today. And uh, Dr. Callahan, thanks so much for making time to be with us. And um, uh, before we dive in to this topic and your book, let's get to know you a little bit better. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what led to the career path that you have taken. Thank you, Steve. I, I really appreciate um, being invited to be on here. I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, it's a topic that is near and dear to my heart, um, but not just for personal reasons, uh, professional as well. So I've been a physician for about 40 years. I always hate to have to add that up and think, really? But but it's true. Um, and I will say I absolutely love what I do. Um, I think I grew up knowing I wanted to be a physician and went in that career path. I did regular family medicine for probably 20 years. In the last almost 20 years, I've done my own sort of uh, type of practice where I do integrative functional medicine, um, which is a little bit different. But in all of it, I, I think when I reflect on my medical career, some of the the most significant work I think I've ever done is working with people who were dealing with end of life. And then in 2010, when I lost Charles, you know, it came home to us. Um, we had a, a long drawn out process of his illness. And Charles is your husband. Charles is my husband. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I didn't really set out to write the book um, at the start of it, but through the process, it just became very clear to me um, that it sort of needed, needed to be written. But so I, I work with, uh, people all across the age spectrum, um, and, and work, as I said, I, I think I've always really been drawn towards end of life care, both professionally and then personally. Now, what, um, what type of physician are you? And I'm going to bring up this website. Uh, this is your current practice, five right. studies. Yeah. So I'm trained in family medicine um, and, and did that, but now it is a holistic um, a functional medicine practice, which is a little bit different in that we really focus on looking at, um, I'll call it root causes of, 
of issues. So I deal with people with more chronic complex conditions, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, a lot of long COVID, autoimmune things. Those, it's kind of a specialty niche now. Great. And then um, I'm going to drop this into the um, into the chat for everybody. But this is also a great place to access information on uh, Dr. Callahan's book. And um, I'm going to click on this here. And uh, the book is A Death Lived. And uh, it's um, it's it's a memoir, but uh, tell us a little bit about, um, well, it, 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 let's let's dive into this this topic. And maybe the best way to dive into it is for you to tell us a little bit about the story of Charles and um, and the inspiration for this book. Yeah. So as oh, there's so many things, but. It, Charles and I were married for 30 years. Um, he's absolutely the love of my life. And as I say to people, I loved him enough to be willing to help him leave. It pure, pure and simple. End of life care became something we knew we had to address. And I really wrote the book because my experience was twofold, right? his wife and a practicing physician, not his physician, absolutely not. But I watched it unfold through both vantage points. And I saw the challenges on both sides of the equation. Um, I saw great potential. We had some terrific care. He was brought back from the brink many times, but in full candor, we as physicians, excluding our hospice colleagues, but most of us are not trained well at all in dealing with end of life issues. You know, we are taught what to do to save lives, to get people better. There's always sort of another thing that can be done. And it became very clear to me that just because we can do it, it's not always the case that we should do it. Charles got to the point where he got tired of it all. He wanted to go home. He wanted to get out of the hospital. We had six ICU admissions in the last year of his life. Mm. That's just too much. Wow. You know, they're probably, you know, we could have probably stretched it to seven or maybe eight, but in the end, he made the decision. He wanted to come home. He wanted to spend time. We had months together, um, you know, as a family sort of in this intense we know he's dying. We don't know when experience. And now, it was rich. Uh, before I forget, I want you to keep going, going on. But before I forget, I want to um, follow up on something that you just said there. As his wife and as a physician, you said that the, the six ICU admissions was too much. Um, elaborate on that a little bit. And, and if you could have crafted something different, what would that look like? Well, I don't know that I could have crafted anything different it, okay. if, as we went through them. Okay. okay. Got it. And each crisis that wound him and us in the ICU, I mean, there, there was extraordinarily high quality medical care that saved his life a number of times. The situation was somewhat similar each time. We, you know, he had a bunch of recurrences. It was a 
cardiovascular issue. Um, he actually had colon cancer, but that's not what killed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's funny because I remember, oh, three quarters of the way through that experience. And by then we were working with a palliative care uh, doctor who was a friend. And I said to him, you know, honestly, n- nothing has changed between now and when we started this. And now you tell me he's dying. I mean, we were having that conversation and I don't get it. Like, like what's changed. And because I, you know, I wasn't always in, I couldn't always see things with physician's eyes. I was his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said to me, it, it's piling on, you know, his, his body has been through, through this too many times. Um, and it was, it was kind of a, a piling on. And at some point the, the, the scale, the balance got tipped. Now, um, do you all have children? We do. Yes. Okay. We have a son who is grown and married, lives in Florida. Um, and I have two older stepsons. Charles had two sons from his first marriage. And uh, how did how did they sort of react to this transition? And, and, and the span of time from when he began? So it was basically a year from uh, 13 months from when the first event happened to when he died. Um, and during that time, there was really intense family engagement. Our son lived locally, not, not in the house with us, but locally. And he was amazing at 24 years old to really, as I've told him since, he gave his father and gave us the gift of time. He was here every day or on the phone. Mm. Um, very much a part of the conversations um, as to what to do, what Charles wanted and didn't want, as were my two older stepsons from a distance because they didn't live locally, but visits and certainly engaged. And it's interesting, you know, blended families can be a, a challenge, right? Just by definition, they can be a challenge. The gift that Charles gave us of his clarity of uh, choices was such that in the last several weeks of Charles's life, as he was actively dying and everybody was gathering, we never had to have another discussion as a family about what we wouldn't would and would not do, hmm. which is really unusual. Um, but Charles had been so clear. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that that's great, and I know that. Um, I, I know that probably since you're serving families in this space that you find that it, it, um, I don't know if it's unique, that communication, uh, but there's a lot of miscommunication when it comes to this chapter, uh, with many folks, any, so much miscommunication and so much missed opportunity, because if there's one thing that, that I really feel strongly about, it's have the conversations and they're hard you know it's not easy to sit down and talk about hey we we know you're dying you know but but what we what we found was that once that had been said once that had been acknowledged and it wasn't a a linear process it wasn't never to be discussed again lots of back and forth lots of round and around 
and you know, a step forward and a step back. And it's as if you're flirting with it. But once it had been said, it was as if the elephant in the room wasn't there anymore. We, we could go on and live our lives in the face of the fact that Charles was dying. And that's actually why I called it a death lived. He lived that dying process in just the most remarkable way. Um, there's an episode I remember, and I, I think I even describe it in the book where it was wintertime and he and I were sitting by the fire as we often did talking about how he was dying and looking at the seed catalog, ordering seeds for the summer. And I was thinking, you know, there's no way he's going to see these bloom and he didn't. And yet you still hold this glimmer of hope and so you can have both you know yeah. once you know you're in the dying space it doesn't mean you have to stop living to stop exactly and and you know when you think about it it's it, i i think one thing in conversations on this topic that i've heard is is where families they start editing their conversations you, you know maybe it's a beach trip next year and it's like oh don't talk about it because um he might not be there, but as we are living, we want to be involved. Most of us want to be involved in those conversations. And I, I had to catch myself because I, I say most of us, because it's important, I think, to have these conversations because you, you might be the type of person that it's like, guys, I'm going to miss you so much. And I know I'm not going to make it on the beach trip. Have those conversations without me okay you know um so it's uh well you, you know before no we, right or wrong right it, it, it's it's having enough of a conversation so that the person who is dying and their close people around them family or whomever understand their values and what's important to them and and what how you, how that person wants this to unfold to the extent mm -hmm. that we have any control over it, which sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. But just like you said, it may be that somebody doesn't want to talk about it and that's obviously their prerogative, but I would hate to think that we assume that for someone. Because what I find so often, and I used to see this in the hospital when I was doing hospital medicine, patient in the bed in the room, oh, don't tell my, spou my spouse that I'm dying. Spouse out in the hall, oh, don't tell the person in the bed they're dying. And I just want to, shake them and scream and say you're missing precious time where you can say things that once they're gone you you know you can still say them but it's a different impact yeah um now uh at the beginning i talked about hospice providers and uh and i see that we've got several that are listening in on and part of this conversation did you uh utilize hospice with uh, Charles. We sure did, yeah. So our experience started in March and Charles died the following April. So as I said, it was about 13 months. And in the fall, I think it was October, but I'd say halfway through, he and I started talking about where's this going? What do we do? When is palliative care appropriate? What? How do we do this? And I called a friend of mine who's a hospice doctor and <laughs> sort of presented the case to him, you know, not saying who, 
And I said, what, what's the timing? What's, what's the appropriate timing? And, you know, I can still feel how my heart jumped when he said now. And, and I, he knew I was talking about Charles. I mean, we were friends, right? But um, what was so remarkable about that was that in working with Tom, it was, it was a progression. He talked to us many times about what the possibilities were. And Charles was not yet ready to make that choice. Uh, and it wasn't as if Tom said, oh, you're going to die by this point of time. But it was, he, he created, he created the space to help us move into having those conversations. And when you get to where you want to do this, these are the options. These are the things we can do. This is what palliative care means. This is what hospice means. Um, hey, uh, just, um, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because there might be some people that are tuning in that don't really understand what hospice and palliative care does. Can you give us a, a brief overview of how you see those two? Yeah, how I see it is a progression. And I, it, there's so much baggage with the words. I, I think that's where we fall down. And parking lot for right now, the whole conversation about how most of us physicians deal with it, which is a different conversation, but palliative care probably comes first. It's kind of symptom management. Um, when I first learned, was really educated about palliative care. I, I think I remember being told, you know, sort of think of somebody who might be in the last three years of their lives. Um, somebody who has a condition that isn't going to get better, but they're not dying right now. But sort of that first foray into how many times do you want to keep going back to the hospital? How many, you know, how, how aggressive do you want to be? So it's kind of that middle ground dance and hospice. I think you're still supposed to have a life expectation of less than six months. Um, that's, I think, a little arbitrary and you can graduate from hospice. And people get the wrong impression that if you involve hospice, that means you're not gonna get any further care. And I think that is uh, something that's really important to know, but that's not true. You're, you know, if, and, and Tom spelled this all out for us. Like if Charles wasn't going to treat his, um, the thing that was killing him, but let's say he fell down and broke his hip, of course, you're gonna take care of that. You're gonna be able to go to the hospital and get that, that dealt with. Uh, it's just that your your treatment of the condition, your terminal condition, you're you're opting not to treat for cure. You're still treating symptoms and being cared for. And um, you know, uh, I I recently just did a uh, an interview on this topic, and I think when I talk to people who work in hospice and palliative care. The number one thing that they all say is people don't call us soon enough is, is that I think there's a lot of waiting before making that call. And uh, probably the best thing that could happen is, is that you call and Tom was your hospice doctor. Yes. Uh, you call Tom and he says, you know, let's give it a few months, <laughs> but at least you know that you're you, you made the call now. Let's, um, Dixie has a question here. 
Uh, I didn't want to derail the direction you're going, but we'll get back on it. She says, can you explain the specific reasons why so many doctors are incapable of referring to hospice sooner than later? But well, Dixie, I guess we were thinking on the same topic there. And then um, fee for service medicine, fear of telling bad news, time involved in telling bad news, not understanding what hospice does. I refer to hospice without a doctor's order when unable to get it and let hospice assess and make the decision of eligibility. Their hospice doctor can enroll them when the oncologist and primary care physician refuse to refer. Um, thanks for sharing that, Dixie and uh, Dr. Callahan. Any sort of thoughts on why are doctors in general slow to refer? Yeah, I, I wish I knew for sure. I have lots of ideas and thoughts about that. And, and I think it's really important what Dixie just said. A, a person can self-refer to hospice, right? So, or a family can. I mean, and that's really important to know. I think um, my generous view would be that that we're not trained well to deal with end of life and that it's, sadly, I think some people do see it as a failure. I will say that one of, one of the physicians who, um, who took care of Charles told me years afterwards that he had never been able to see a patient death as anything but his personal failure, which just mm -hmm. broke my heart because I hate to think of somebody carrying that burden. And I also wanted to say, who the heck do you think you are? I mean, newsflash, we're all going to die. It's yeah. the only certain thing, period. You, you can't prevent it forever. Mm -hmm. I think there are things worse than dying. And one of them is being kept alive for, you know, just to be alive. That's, that's a value judgment. But yeah. I think that there are physicians who haven't been taught how to do it well. And it's hard to sit down with someone and have that conversation. Yeah, and you know, in fairness, as I reflect on this, and I've never really thought of it this way, but depending on where you started your medical practice, um, let's say that it's in pediatrics or surgery or something like that, you could see where that sort of, you know, that score of death is um, really can have an impact on somebody in in that position. Um, it, it, it's hard to lose a patient, Yeah, but it happens. And I think that part of our job as physicians is to, to help, to ease that transition, to, to make it less uncomfortable, less painful. I mean, I just don't think people should die in pain. I, and I think that the conversations should be had. I've gotten to the place where I have that conversation much more easily with people all the time. Like, you know, have you thought about this? Even if they're perfectly well or seemingly well, you know, what do you want? What, what are you talking to your family about? How, you know, how, and people will tell you, they'll shut you down if they really don't want to talk about it. I find most people are incredibly relieved to have the door open to start that conversation. Yeah. Um, I, we've got some good questions coming in here. So let me jump on these. Yeah. Uh, Vivian says, 
Dr. Kellyanne's husband was an active agent in living in his dying process. Yes, I, I totally agree, Vivian. We as caregivers can learn to be their partners in this process. But turning this around, how do we help our dying loved one have the desire to live the final chapter, however long that may be? My husband in deep dementia no longer has the capacity to live himself and is being kept alive by me and the staff at his assisted living community. Um, a lot to unpack there, but uh, any thoughts on, uh, on, you know, helping caregivers in this situation? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, a situation and, and a burden that is especially hard, I think, when somebody is suffering from dementia. Um, you know, when I contrast that to what we went through, and Charles was such an active participant because he was cognitively fine until, you know, several days before he died. Um, I think the only thing that that I would bring it back to is I would hope that we all have documents in place and have had conversations with people who are going to be our decision makers as to what we want and what we don't want. Um, you, you know, it, it's a funny, we're stuck in a funny um, place when a body won't die. You know, I I went through the experience two years ago with my mother who was very old, she was 96, um, hard to argue with that and fell and broke her hip and as predicted, six months later died. And, you know, she she didn't necessarily wanna stay alive. And I used to tell her, you know, I can't put a pillow over your head. I just can't, you know, not allowed to. And we would laugh about it and joke about it. Um, but we are kind of stuck in those situations. And I don't know how to suggest to help somebody live when they're cognitively not aware. And, you know, this is, I, I was waiting for this topic to come up and uh, Gary, uh, who Gary Weatherspawn, who I believe is with Final Exit Network, who we, um, um, did a discussion with says, based on your experience as a wife and MD, do you support the right to die on one's own term when facing end of life? And um, uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on the- uh, I, do, I do support medical aid in dying. Um, I, I think it should be legal and available and there are lots of permutations and, you know, I, I know the arguments of some of the controversy with that, but I, I do think it should be legal and available and safe. Um, yeah, you know, there, there's so many instances in which somebody is at the point where they can't do it. Like maybe somebody in deep dementia can't do it. Uh, somebody physically impaired can't do it. You know, there, there are lots of outlying situations that still are fraught with a lot of difficulty. But I, I do support the movement. And I think you just put up, Steve, the Compassion and Choices website. Did yep. I see that? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I'm also doing the Final Exit Network and uh, I'm putting that up. 
and then uh let's see actually we had a um we had a good discussion on this topic a while back too so i'm dropping that into uh to chat but it is it it's a conversation that people have and and i think before we were talking about this the do some research on medical aid and dying because as both of us have found when we we're talking before you have to catch yourself to realize that this is not necessarily you, you know um, it's not called assisted suicide for a reason is because it's um it, it it it's a different process it is yeah yeah but um, i do think that um you know with my interest in and and passion about helping people have these hard conversations i do think there's a tremendous uh, tool available through compassion choices they have uh, a whole toolkit that helps people broach the whole subject and kind of lay out options and sometimes i even find that it's easier to use a tool than to have that one-on-one -on -one with somebody if that's uncomfortable um, all right, and uh, let's see, Vivian has another question here. She says, Dr. Callahan is practicing integrative medicine now. This type of medicine is not covered by Medicare and many other insurance policies. Why is that? How do we find integrative medicine practitioners that are covered by insurance? And, and uh, I'll drop in a, a discussion we had on integrative medicine. But um, is is would you say that you practice integrative medicine, and could you give us an explanation of that? I do, I, I do. It is integrative medicine, so um, it, it's using different um, systems and and tools uh, that we don't necessarily use in our regular Western medicine, whether that's herbal medicine or. Uh, other botanicals or homeopathics. I do a lot of mind-body medicine. And unfortunately, at this point, it generally is not um, covered under insurance. And I think that's a time issue, really. It's a very time-intensive process. But that's, I believe that's changing. Certainly, the the groundswell is, is shifting. And I know a lot of people who are working hard to figure out a way to have these kinds of services covered under insurance. So I, I think it will come in time. And I, I just dropped in a discussion with uh, Dr. Kogan, who is with George Washington University, yeah. and he's regarded as a uh, one exactly. of the leaders in, in that field. So um, so this is good. Okay. Um, very much the same medicine now. So yeah, I, I love it. Okay. Uh, so Adele says, my dad wanted me to help him die. He was 92 in hospice and had lost his wife of 62 years. He had three different types of cancer. I was a coward and he lived another year and a half without his wife and it made me very sad. Um, number one, Adele, thank you for sharing that story. And I'm just, you know, Dr. Callahan, how, when somebody uh, shares a story like that, whether they be in the middle of it or after the fact, what are some words of wisdom that you were able to offer? I mean, I, I again, I thank you for for sharing that. And if you're here, you know, in, in Virginia, certainly. I mean, if you're local, 
I don't think you were a coward. There's nothing else. I mean, we can't. Right, because legally, you can't. Uh, what we can do is we can help people choose not to have things treated. Okay. My mother used to say that pneumonia was, when she was growing up, was the old people's friend because it was, you know, you were going to die when you get pneumonia. And if you were old, that was not such a bad way to go. Uh, I think that when somebody has reached the end of their life and they don't want to have further treatment, pneumonia, urinary tract infection, I mean, we can opt not to treat those things, right? And, uh, and that is not, that would not be considered um, aid in dying. That is just yeah. not treating, choosing not to treat that, yeah. that now, issue. I can hear a little you know, pretend lawyer sitting on my shoulder saying, well, make sure that you're not slipping into abuse of somebody by withholding treatment. So mm -hmm. that's a whole other discussion. But, you know, people will get to the point where they choose to not eat or drink any longer. Okay. I mean, that's, and, and I think as caretaker, family member, whatever, if we've had all those conversations and you understand what's motivating that person, then you can support them be present with them hold their hand and that's a tremendous gift yeah and as we were also talking before you know it's horrible well i shouldn't say it's horrible. it can be challenging to watch somebody uh die over a period of time but in many ways that can also be a gift because all of us could walk out the door today and and be gone in an instant, and we didn't have the opportunity to prepare our families and to have conversations that we wanted to have because it was immediate and more of a surprise, you know. I was sharing with you before the, you know, when we were talking earlier, I have a close friend whose husband died getting off the treadmill. And it was fairly close to when Charles died. And we have shared many a glass of wine talking about, you know, who had it better? Was it better for her husband or mine? Or who, you know, was it easier for her or me? And, you know, as, as Steve just said, we don't get to choose. Um, and there are obviously pros and cons of, of both exits. But there is something beautiful in the... Um, being mindful and present through the process because it's it's painful rich but beautiful time um great thank you okay um let's see uh lewis says i agree from my experience as a contractor and equipment installer that people want a real story they are frustrated by medical folks who tiptoe around and avoid the real info on what the client should expect. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think telling it straight is probably the uh, the best way to go. And um, uh, but it's you know I, I I'm I'm not comparing this at all to you know when we have a conversation when you, having difficult conversations take takes practice and empathy and and support. Um, let's see. Um, and then Adele says, and she's following up on her previous statement. She said, 
is there something I could have done to ease his emotional pain? So sort of looking back at, at that experience. I mean, I, I don't know for sure, but I think just being with somebody, being present um, and talking with them and acknowledging what they're going through and you know, maybe engaging whatever their belief system is. <clears throat> and Adele and everybody, you, you know, which we were chatting about this before we came on as well. Our number one topic of discussion on this platform is solo aging. And it's Adele, I think one of the things that you referenced in your story is, is that his wife had, of 62 years had passed away and you know, he felt lonely and isolated. And one, one of the things that we're really having on these solo aging discussions is sort of living with the reality that our partner and that, that more than likely one partner's going to outlive the other. If, if we're fortunate enough to be, to be married or be in a partnership and and by acknowledging that now you can begin to have these conversations, it's always going to be painful. We're always going to grieve it, but expecting it may help um, ease some of that emotional pain in, in all of us uh, in, in kind of preparing for that. Um, you know, a good friend of mine uh, recently had a, uh, his, his spouse passed away and, and he was somebody who was very aware of all of this. And I, I was just sort of like, he was amazed at how, you know, how much he didn't know. And I was, and I said to him, I was like, you've been telling people to plan ahead for all this your entire life, your, your working career. And his response was, in my wildest dreams, I never expected um, that I would outlive her. And, and I kind of reflect on that is, is that I think maybe a lot of us feel that way. It's is that, oh, for sure, I'm, my wife is gonna outlive me. I'm not gonna have to worry about being a solo ager. And again, none of us have a crystal ball. It's very true. Um, let's see, uh, okay. Um, okay, uh, Carla, uh, oh, Carla Anderson, no, this is great. She's a, a I referred to her earlier, uh, a death doula, um, open communication about how to be present and what type of support the dearly departing wants is a great place to start and recommit to day to day. So um, uh, thanks for that. And then Nicole says, uh, curious if Dr. Callahan has any experience on thoughts on music therapy off topic from the conversation, so no worries. No, just out of curiosity. Yeah, what what types of therapies, because you are practicing integrative medicine, and I think that that a integrative medicine provider would probably be more open to suggesting things like music and pet therapy. I think they're both terrific. Um, we, we also experienced, um, actually through the hospice, Reiki. Um, so there, there are a number of therapies that can be brought to bear. And again, you know, having conversations with people ahead of time 
and knowing them like what you know music music is wonderful it can help you know bring back memories it can be very soothing um there there are a lot of things like that that are useful there's a there's a document also that's called five wishes and i can't for the life of me think who makes it maybe it's just five wishes yeah i'll pull it up um and they actually work through uh, it's like a little workbook where you work through a whole series of questions to see what you might want for yourself at, at end of life. And uh, that was one of the first steps that we took in, in that direction. And um, we were working through it and it was like, you know, music or comfort or what. And when it got to the question about, you know, do you want your feet to be rubbed with oil? I can still remember Charles was like, enough i'm done with this <laughs> well just let me be <laughs> but the cool thing about that is then you know right yeah okay oil is not something that he wants now we might have had that conversation closer to the time of death and he you know certainly could have changed his mind but i think music actually is on that list of things that might be soothing to somebody mm-hmm. but you know and you laugh about it when you first go through it like because you don't, again, you don't think it's going to happen to you and certainly not right now. And it can sound a little goofy, but you've broken the ice. You're having the conversation. You're talking about whether you want your feet being rubbed with oil while you're dying. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, and I dropped the five <laughs> wishes document in there. Uh, so many people reference that. Uh, and I think so many people have used it. It continues to be refined and, uh, and really helping a lot of folks. Um, Gary asks, uh, uh, a Stanford Med School survey of a thousand doctors reported that about 90% would decline any of the interventions commonly provided at end of life, except palliative care. And, and he wants to know your, your thoughts on that. I'd be right there with him, probably. <laughs> and I think I, that's because, I mean, what we, what we know, what we see is that I think our experience affords us the opportunity to realize sooner than than non-medical people when you're reaching sort of a, a stage of futility, right? And that takes me right back to, I wish we were trained to be more honest and direct with people about, yes, these are the options that are available. These are the things we could do. And this is likely what might happen with them and, and help people make choices. And there are people who want absolutely everything done. And I'm not denigrating that choice, but I think so many people, I, I talk, I think I use this term in the book, you get on that medical moving sidewalk and it's hard to get off. Oh yeah, and, no, and and especially you know you're surrounded by people that love you and don't want to see you right. leave. You know, so um, let let's uh, this is oh let's see. Barbara asks, can hospice use morphine to ease pain at end of life, and can they use enough morphine to bring on death? Um, uh, and and we do have hospice providers on, but I'm not sure if you can answer that question, uh, Dr. Callahan? Certainly, um, yes, yes to morphine. Um, And I I think I would defer to one of the hospital doctors, but personally, I don't think that people should have to be in 
pain or discomfort and we have tools. Um, you know, it's a, it's a balancing act, right? And morphine also can be really helpful with breathing issues at the end of life. So if there's somebody on who wants to pop in. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure if Barbara, your question was sort of using morphine as a medical aid in dying. I, but my, my, my thought on that is, is that, well, could somebody, could somebody accidentally be given too much morphine and then they, they pass away? Um, I'm not familiar with that drug, Dr. Kelly. And I know that it's, it's a, uh, a pain, uh, it, it's used to help pain. It is used to help pain and it can slow down respiration. So, okay. Yeah. But, um, okay, L let me jump back to the book. Um, so I've got, I've got the, I've, I've added the link there and, and here's the cover of the book in Amazon where, you, where folks can order it. But um, let me kind of roll. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, you don't have titles for your chapters. Um, but as, Folks, as you can see, there's 20 chapters of the book. And um, uh, tell us a little bit about the organization and, and kind of uh, the story that is, is being told and how the book might help. Um... So really the, the story as I wrote it is, is a chronicle basically of that 13 months that we went through. Um, telling the story of what happened to Charles, telling the story of how I viewed it and sort of my, some of it is my back and forth dance of like, oh, I'm sure he's getting better. And like, no, he really isn't. Um, how and when we engaged with the palliative care and hospice people, um, some of the ups and downs of what do, what does he want? What doesn't he want? A lot of discussion about the the um, discussions we had as a family. The um, I called it the death breakfast when we were all together and he sat us down as a family and was absolutely crystal clear about what he did and didn't want. Um, you know, not to be maintained, no dialysis, no feeding tubes, none of this. And that's when our son said, well, you know, dad, we could just have you taxidermied and just leave you in your chair forever. So, you know, there was, um, there was humor, there were tears, there were, but that, that's really the trajectory of the book is describing the, the process with those sort of internal conversations going on too, and then describing the whole sort of last two weeks of his life as he was actively dying. And, you know, I, I know your son was tongue in cheek about the taxidermy and we don't practice taxidermy on humans. However, um, the, the end of life celebration and, uh, or a memorial or funeral or what we want to call it um, has really become quite creative and quite customized to people's needs. And, they're customized to what they want to have happen. And I, you've probably seen the pictures of, you know, folks that are sort of propped up in a chair, you, you know, that at the kitchen table that they were always at. And that's how they want people to view them, not in a casket. 
And then you've got the surfers funeral, you know, where ashes are spread out in the ocean. Tell us a little bit about the conversations that that you and your family had with Charles and, and how that went. He was always very clear that he wanted a celebration and a party, not really so much what we would call a funeral. And mm -hmm. you're bringing to mind a, a conversation as we um, got help and support from the the priest at, at the church. And that's a whole separate story because um, it had been a while since Charles had been sort of participating in any kind of church. But um, John came and, and was having a conversation and he you know, talk about not being afraid of difficult conversations. Pretty early on, he asked Charles what he thought about a funeral. And I I remember sitting there thinking, good God, you just, you know, we just started talking and you're, I, I was just kind of good, good for you. And Charles very simply said, you know, I, I could care less. I, I could care less. And I remember John saying, I understand that because in his worldview, you know, you're going to be in a state of total bliss and you're not going to care. But what he said that was so helpful was he said, what I want to do is I want to help craft something that's going to help Martha and Connor and your other two sons at that time. And is that okay with you? That's great. Um, it was and, a huge gift. Well, yeah, I was going to say that that is... Um, uh, he's gone and now you've got the burden of are we doing what he wanted and uh and so that's 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 great um that you you had those conversations um when referring to uh, to the book or as i'm looking at the clock we're getting close to the top of the hour i want to give you the opportunity to share any insights that we may have not touched on or that have been triggered by our uh our community members asking questions and any any additional talking points that you'd like to make sure that we address you know my my single strongest wish for people is that they have these conversations with their family members and their loved ones um even years before you think you're going to need it you know we all think we're going to live till forever or or whatever um, and knowing full well that the situations can change, you know, you might make different decisions when the, when you're actually at that place and that's fine, but start to have the conversation so that everybody knows what's important to you. You know, I would love to see people have these conversations sort of like on an annual basis. I mean, many of us once a year might review, you know, is your homeowner's insurance sort of still adequate your auto insurance your financial documents all, all those kinds of not top of the list of joyful things to do but why not include in there who's your decision maker is there any reason to change that um have you had a conversation with that decision maker or that can they actually do what you are going to ask them to do um has there been a change in your situation in the last year such that you would change something? Um, just have that discussion once a year. Have it at the Thanksgiving dinner table. I don't know, <laughs> you know, well, everybody's there. And and I think if if that were the norm, if people talked about it enough, it would be less scary 
less of the elephant in the room. And then when the time comes, it's like, yeah, I know what mom wants, you know, and now let's see how we can help make this happen and not have to have this tremendous rift of, oh my God, who's going to broach the subject with her? You know, it's, as I say, it's going to happen. We're all going to die. So I think the sooner we can use those words and talk about them as just a part of life, it's better for all of us. So that would be my my call to action. Please, please, please have the conversation because you'll be glad you did. Yeah, and, and Dixie uh, threw in there that now there are death cafes um, yes. and there's a, I, I, I want to I track somebody down from this organization, Death Over Dinner, because it comes up quite a bit. And um, I think it's a great concept. And um, the, uh, but, but it's a, it's a muscle that we, if we exercise it, it can really create some very thought provoking uh, conversation. And it's, um, it's not as uncomfortable as, uh, you know, it's sort of, um, it makes it more manageable. Yeah. So, um, oh, and then also the conversation project is well, another, right. mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, Dixie, you definitely get the gold star today for, um, for sharing some great resources. And, and just a reminder, cause somebody did just jump into the, um, discussion a little bit late. Uh, all of these resources that we're dropping into chat are, uh, are, going to be on the recording link and that'll be up in a few hours after this conversation and uh and then we also convert this into a podcast so you could share it with your friend to uh listen to while they're walking the dog um let's see uh betty asks does the book talk about what you did after charles d died to support yourself in your grief yeah thank you betty uh, tell us a little bit about that process the grieving process that you went through. Yeah, I know that the book ends um, as Charles dies. Um, the grieving process, you know, it's, it, it is exactly that. It is a process. And when you mentioned earlier, you know, aging alone, Steve, that certainly then became part of, of my life. Um, you know, I've got tremendous support from family, my son, um, siblings, friends. Um, I'm really blessed to still have my practice. I have pretty strong spiritual practice. Um, and I miss Charles absolutely every day. It's it, they're both true. It's, it's a, it's not a, an, or. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, this is great. And in the, um, uh, lots of good resources are being dropped into chat. And like I said, that's all being recorded. Um, well, Dr. Callahan, I have to agree with my friend Cynthia Shannon, who said you were an amazing uh, presenter. This has been a wonderful conversation, and um, I, uh, I I really hope it's just the first of many. I'd love to have you back on again, and and uh, if there's ever a specific topic on this this in this area that you'd like to talk about, or perhaps we have you back to talk about integrative medicine a little bit more. People are really interested in that 
as well. Thank you. I, I really appreciate being here. I, I appreciate the time and, and everybody's interest and support. I, I think it's amazing that there's so many wonderful resources. So thank you for the work you're doing. Yeah, uh, thank you. And then just a reminder, folks, I know I dropped I dropped this into chat, but um, and, and several of these organizations are on the, the call today, but the uh, Positive Aging Community Champions that we have that can support you with your aging uh, end-of-life decisions, uh, you know, Bridging Life, Capital Caring Health, uh, Carly Anderson, the deaf midwife who's on this call, Goodwin House Hospice, I, I saw, saw that there are Goodwin Hospice, and um, Hospice of Chesapeake, Journey Hospice, and the Medical Team Hospice. Just uh, some great resources. I think, you know, one of the things to remember is that none of us have to walk this road alone, whether it be planning or in the middle of it, uh, reach out and talk to as many people as you can. Um, and you'll be surprised at how many resources uh, come out of the wood, the, the woodwork there. So great. All right, folks. Thank you. Okay. Thanks again, Dr. Callahan. Thank you all for participating.